This week on the podcast, a little nonprofitnewsfeed.com summary of news for the nonprofit sector. And we are bringing you some news from uh, June 1st. And I have Nick, I have Carisha, and they are very much ready. Hey, folks. Hey, George. Hey, George. Should we go at a glance the highlighted stories that we sent this week, Nick? Absolutely. I can start us off. So the first one is, of course, um, we should mention the 100th anniversary of the Tulsa Massacre. Now, the Tulsa Massacre, of course, being one of the most egregious examples of racial violence in American history. And it was marked um, in its 100th anniversary by various events commemorating the victims and really um, kind of reinvigorating this really important and oft overlooked historical event into the narrative and into the conversation about America and justice. And the nonprofit hook here is that several nonprofits are participating in the commemoration of the massacre, including the Oklahoma Archaeological Survey, which is associated with the University of Oklahoma, that is doing the work to find, identify, and preserve victims' remains. Um, And on the flip side, the nonprofit Centennial Commission is building a historic center to preserve um, this overlooked history of the massacre. So lots of different programs and events um, commemorating this really tragic, um, but important to learn and study about um, history of of racial violence. Um, I should note that the Centennial Commission has drawn criticism um, and is involved in a conversation that I myself am not necessarily well-versed enough to speak to about too much, but regarding reparations, which is a big part of um, the conversation around justice and restorative justice in the wake of the Tulsa massacre. But just wanted to highlight this story because I think that this year, more than ever, with the marking of the 100th anniversary and lots of media attention and press, it's really important to highlight this story and contextualize it um, you know, within national conversations happening now. And nonprofits should be aware that we're now having conversations about reparations and addressing historical trauma and injustice. And these are conversations that have taken way too long to happen. Um, but just now, finally, they're coming to the forefront. Um, so, of course, wanted to, to highlight this at the top of the pod. It's amazing to see the amount of uh, nationwide press uh, this is getting. But as we know, what happens with press is uh, it's it's very loud but very short. And what I do actually like seeing where nonprofits are are picking this up of you know this archaeological survey and actually finding out what happened and then uh, a museum to make sure that it isn't just a one and done press bump but has sustained actual attention and is something that educates uh, generations to come about it. However, it's tough when you build a museum and sort of summarize events that are very much still unresolved uh, in the narrative of, you know, over a million dollars of damage a hundred years ago, frankly, that's a lot of reparations. There's a lot of money that you're talking about because insurance didn't cover it because they screwed them over. And frankly, um, I I think it's, it's a larger conversation that, uh, 
has, has to be settled. Uh, and, and I hope that, you know, frankly, the nonprofits working in that field understand that this is a stepping stone and it isn't uh, the sort of, um, you know, here's your museum, now let's forget um, type of approach. And it doesn't seem that way. And there are a lot of, uh, a lot of voices involved, but amazing to see nonprofits trying to, uh, uh, to bring this and keep this in, in the forefront uh, of America's complicated racial history. Absolutely. Um, and I, I think uh, back to, to other efforts by nonprofits and organizations to highlight this history, um, including the Equal Justice Initiative, um, which is led by uh, amazing civil rights um, attorneys and lawyers and all this work to kind of, um, you know, bring the history to the present and help us understand that these, you know, these events, this trauma is, is not, we're not far removed from that, right? Um, so really important work. Moving on to our next story. This is a story about a Russian-backed hack of USAID leaving NGOs compromised. Yes, you heard that right. Um, unfortunately, there's a, another hack and this one was reported out last week by the New York Times um, after a statement issued by Microsoft Vice President. Um, and it turns out here that Russia state-backed hackers are believed to have breached USAID's external communications client, which I believe in this case was constant contact. And the hackers were able to send out malicious emails to over 3,000 accounts from over 150 organizations. A lot of the organizations on this list um, included humanitarian organizations, human rights NGOs, think tanks, and all sorts of other stakeholders within the civil society world. Um, and this attack is kind of reminiscent of the SolarWinds hack if we think back to um, the end of last year, which was a major uh, data breach of U.S. government systems. And this kind of thing is just increasingly escalating. And the, the nonprofit hook here is you need to be emphasizing cybersecurity, especially if you deal with any kind of um, potentially controversial work or global work or or anything of the sort. Two-factor authentication, um, employee trainings on identifying phishing emails. There's a whole host of kind of basic steps you can do to protect your organization that are now more critical than ever. I'm not saying you'll be able to stop Russian state-backed hackers, um, but even so, being able to identify um, and kind of filter out this uh, this malicious um, uh, attacks are really important now more so than ever. Yeah, they seem to be escalating across all manner of sectors, oil and meat industry, and guess what, nonprofit industry. Uh, you know, setting up things like two-factor authentication may sound like, oh, we'll get to it later. Like, later's now, um, and later is too late. So taking this seriously, um, and also shameless plug, Whole Whale has a cybersecurity course. I'm not above this. It is an amazing cybersecurity course. And frankly, if you're hearing this and you're like, oh, I don't know if we can afford it. Just, if you find us and say, hey, I can't really afford that cybersecurity course, but we need access, like just contact us um, because this is important stuff to keep um, your stakeholders safe, to keep your donors safe and your work, frankly, out of nefarious hands. All right, Carisha, on to the summary. What else do we have? 
Yeah, quite a few headlines this week. Our first one reads, warning signs emerge for fundraisers in the latest economic reports. Um, And this article is from philanthropy.com. Really, we've been keeping track of nonprofit employment rate and kind of how the economy really plays into fundraising trends and giving trends and things like that. And so what this article is really showing are just some of the uh, economic trends that we're seeing. Um, So consumer confidence is down from April, um, gross or a strong first quarter in the GDP, um, kind of unemployment and all of those things. So just really important aspects to keep in mind as you take a look at your own nonprofit fundraising for this year. Um, And then going into end of year fundraising for 2021 after what feels like a a volatile year of 2020. Yeah, you know, it's hard to speculate on these pieces, but uh, at a broad stroke, remember that the numbers I always look at are the GDP and the fact that 2% 2% of our GDP ends up being the giving number, plus or minus 0.1 or less. And so things that impact uh, the macro economy impact definitely the way people give. Um, and sometimes even more disproportionately, as sad as it seems, how the freaking market does in the final month even of the year and how people are taking taking losses or not, our gains or not, and making donations as a result. Yeah. Yeah, just things to keep in mind, um, especially as you take a look at your own data and see how it kind of compares. Our next headline reads, um, what North Carolina's donor privacy bill would and wouldn't do for nonprofits? This is coming from PolitiFact.com from some uh, state bills passing in North Carolina. Um, If your time is short, according to PolitiFact.com, North Carolina State Senator Natasha Marcus tweeted that SB 636 would allow, quote, politically active 501c4 organizations to hide major donors while using their money to support or oppose candidates and political issues. And what this really leads back to is really disclosing who is um, giving your organization money and kind of what that means for your organization. Um, There are kind of two sides to this coin. Some people feel like it's making dark money even darker and others feel like it's um, kind of protecting the privacy of certain donors as well. So um, what this means for nonprofits is that there could be more privacy around who exactly is donating to your organization, at least in the state of North Carolina. Yeah. And it's interesting to look at these types of pieces because it's tested in one state and repeated elsewhere. So we keep an eye on these pieces and, and C4s are uniquely different than C3s. C4s, remind you, can play in the political theater. That is the purpose. That is how they are designated. And so, uh, you know, I definitely hear the dark money even darker. Um, You don't want unlimited funds spent in unlimited ways for political persuasion. Um, You really need to see uh, the trail, follow the money. Um, It's one of those things that after the fact, we found out we were pretty angry when Russian dollars were sent into Facebook for ads. Like there are way too many side doors if you begin to remove transparency in our political monetary funnels. Yeah, definitely. Our next headline reads, ExxonMobil loses a proxy fight with green investors. This was kind of an interesting article. It really just outlines this hedge fund was really kind of trying to get more green, green, quote unquote, green investors onto um, the ExxonMobil board. ExxonMobil is one of the biggest oil producers on the Western Hemisphere. So having a quote unquote green tinge directors on the board could hopefully promote a lower carbon strategy. Um, so interesting to keep in mind how we think about um, these very big oil producers and companies um, 
and having them be a little bit green and what that means also for uh, nonprofits and organizations that are trying to make um, our environment a little greener too. Clearly, this is not a nonprofit. This is a <laughs> activist, green-minded hedge fund, but it's changing the policy from within. And it is a new tactic that, frankly, if you take over the board of a company, you've taken over that company in terms of mindset. And so it's interesting, you know, if you talk about how you approach environmental issues and you have here to only gone to the general audience or tried to hit politicians and, and sort of said, you know, we can't, we have to attack these companies. Like, why don't you just take them over? Are there hedge funds? Are there hedge fund leaders? Are there thought leaders in economic circles that you could get um, to the table to go after? And by the way, the narrative is very clear that, Having a company that relies on dead dinosaurs and their ability to mine them out of the ground on an indefinite horizon is not good for the shareholder. Why you need green investors to tell a company that is beyond me. However, I love this as a new potential tactic. Let's say you're fighting plastics. Well, wait a minute. Why don't you try to encourage Dow Chemical, one of the largest producers of plastic, to maybe change a few seats on that board? How do you do that? you go after the institutional investors as a potential advocacy tactic. So I wanted to highlight this. I was excited to see it. And I'm just trying to flex my environmental studies uh, major from college. See, mom, I'm using it. <laughs> That's hilarious. <laughs> uh, our next headline reads, nonprofit buys over 6,000 acres of conservation in Georgia. Um, this comes from Fairfield Citizen Online and reports of the Conservation Fund um, buying up over 6,000 acres of uh, forest to keep conserved in Southeast Georgia. Um, the land has been purchased along the Altamaha River. Hopefully I'm saying that correctly. If anybody is from Georgia and listening, feel free to correct me later. Um, but this forest is not only protecting trees, but they're also protecting wildlife such as endangered mussels um, and fish such as the Atlantic sturgeon, um, as well as gopher tortoises, which are protected by state law as a threatened species. So really great to see again, some more eco-friendly initiatives happening, um, not only for trees, but also for animals in the area. Um, but the Conservation Fund did say that it will continue to honor private leases and allowing forestry operations and recreation on the tract. Um, so a little bit of both in the area. Yeah, great to see. Environmental plus one. I wonder how that made it in there. No bias at all in this reporting. <laughs> we love the trees, George. It's your, it's your favorite thing. <laughs> And then our last headline reads, Nonprofit Powers, Creation of Low-Cost COVID Vaccine. Um, again, from philanthropy.com. Um, really, just this is coming on the tail end of, um, at least especially in New York within my circles. I know everybody and anybody who can get vaccinated is getting vaccinated. But oftentimes, we find ourselves kind of in the bubble of our own worlds, um, where a lot of people in the U.S. and higher income countries such as the U.S. have very high vaccination rates, such as 42 percent. Um, but then in other countries um, that are more low income, such as Afghanistan, it's less than one percent. Um, so hopefully this vaccine will be able to be um, a lot cheaper than the ones that we are being exposed to and are getting um, and can hopefully lead to higher vaccination rates in the yeah, future. We're, we're not None of us is vaccinated until all of us are vaccinated. And I love seeing nonprofits do this work. Right. Awesome. All right, Nick, 
what do we have for our feel-good story? Sure. So our feel-good story this week is uh, coincides with Memorial Day, and we just wanted to highlight one of the many awesome organizations that are helping soldiers and other military service members and their families um, after tours of duty or otherwise active service. And in this segment, we wanted to highlight um, TAPS, which is an organization that works to support the family members grieving a loved one, especially um, families of service members and folks who've served in our military. And um, yeah, I just wanted to highlight this story because we wanted to promote one of the many organizations supporting our veterans and their families. And if you look at the statistics and data, our country does not take nearly as good care of our service members as we should be. Um, so yet again, um, an example of nonprofits filling in the gap here. Um, so just wanted to highlight that um, and end on, uh, you know, a, a kind of uh, a thoughtful note as we, uh, you know, leave um, Memorial Day weekend and, and go on with our summers. But um, just to, again, commemorate um, folks who've, who've, you know, paid the, the ultimate sacrifice um, for serving our country. Thanks, Nick. Well, there you have it. Some nonprofit news, great news from a great sector for uh, this, uh, this first week of, uh, of June. And you can find more at nonprofitnewsfeed.com. This has been Using the Whole Whale podcast. If you want to keep learning more about these topics and others, head on over to wholewhale.com university to keep learning with us. Thanks as always to Greg Thomas Music.org for his tunes that underwrite our tracks. They're fantastic. Hope you're doing well, Greg. And just a reminder, subscribes really help us on any platform that you listen to us on. Please give a thought to click and subscribe and maybe even a comment because we like hearing from you. This meeting is being recorded.